There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, manna on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need to worry now that I know everything I need, you've got this honey in the rock. Let's stand and worship this morning, church. Praying for a miracle, thirsty for the living world. Sweetness at the mercy seat. Now I've tasted it's not hard to see. Only you can satisfy. There's honey in the rock. There's honey in the rock. There's honey in the rock. There's honey in the
equips you with practical tools to disciple other people regardless of where you are in life. It's taught me how to disciple uh, people and it's given me a, a lot better understanding of the Bible. I knew a lot about the Bible, knew a lot of books, knew a lot of scriptures, memorized a lot, but I had trouble kind of putting everything together and it did a good job of doing that for me. It gave me just a hunger and thirst to learn more about His Word and how it's so much more even though I've been walking with God for a long time, there's so much more to learn in God's Word. It's more than a Bible study because I've been in a lot of Bible studies. I've taught Bible studies. I've been under great teaching. But it's being immersed in God's Word for nine months. And it just comes in not just for knowledge, but giving with tools, the ability to apply things, how to make disciples. You get all kinds of different perspectives. All the pastors that are brought in have their own unique teaching styles, and so you get a, a wide perspective of, of what we're studying. It's information that you can use to teach again or to help lead somebody. When I hear the word, I have more understanding because I had a better starting point. It's not just a study material. It's biblical, it's relational. It's a spiritual marker in my life. Uh, that really changed how I live and how I'm going to continue to live. I can say Downline is the best investment I've ever made in myself. It's nine months for the rest of your life. And without Downline, I truly don't think I would be equipped to make disciples. Good morning, church. Uh, Clark here with you this morning. My name's Clark Nolan. If I haven't met you, um, would love to do that. Welcome to our church family gathering. We're glad that you're here with us. This, this is my friend Dave Adams. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no doubt. He, his wife, uh, Caitlin, they moved here in the last year or so with their family. And Dave is on staff with Downline Ministries. And so this morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to be equipped, an opportunity to serve, and then we have an opportunity to send. And so I wanted Dave to share just a, a few minutes about Downline. Just tell us, who is this institute for? How long is it, and where can they find out more information, Dave? Thanks, Clark. Appreciate you guys having me. Give me a few minutes. Uh, Downline is a nine-month equipping institute designed to really give people a vision for disciple-making and then walking from Genesis to Revelation so that we can learn the Scriptures in ways that we can give it away to somebody else. Over the last 15 years, uh, we've seen over 2,000 people go through the institute over five or six different locations, and really were aimed at two things. What's a vision for disciple-making? What was Jesus commanding you and I to do when he said, go and make disciples? And how do I do it in my home with my kids? How do I impart my faith to my children? In the community with lost people, how do I engage them with the gospel and see them trained up in the faith? And with younger believers, how do I take what I know of Christ, give that away to somebody else so that they can then go reproduce? So we want to give you a vision for that over nine months from August to May, walking through this institute, and then again, march from Genesis to Revelation to kind of load your arsenal with tools you can use as you invest your life into other people. So that's kind of the 30,000-foot view of Downline, 
And it's really designed for anyone who wants to get serious about God's word and making disciples. We take folks all the way from uh, post-college, so early to mid-20s, all the way up to folks in their 70s and 80s, retirees. We've seen people from every season of life go through the Institute um, and would love to talk with you more. I'll be at a table in the back in the lobby and love to speak with you after service. You have some more interest. Thanks, Dave. I know I went through this Institute 12 years ago. Uh, this fall, and as I've often said, vision leaks, and my discipleship vision, how to be intentional with that, um, it was leaking, and I needed a B12 shot of discipleship vision, if you will, and so it really helped me be intentional, and I love the way that you guys involve local church pastors in teaching in the Institute. It's really cool, so um, like he said, more information out there, see them. Our opportunity to serve, if you walk out into the foyer, um, right there in the middle, right behind you as you walk out, there are balloons there. We have opportunities. God is bringing more families um, to our church, and we have opportunities in Fayette Kids in both early childhood and elementary. Aaron Parks is going to tell us a little bit more about that next week, but now is the time to sign up and become a released leader in that capacity. And so if you haven't found a place to serve here, that's a great opportunity, and so check that out as, as you walk out this morning. We also have an opportunity. I'm super excited about this, and I'm a little bit sad, too. Scott and Audrey, could you guys come on up here for a second? Scott and Audrey, Rosek, they became committed Christ followers during their time in college here at the University of Arkansas. It's one of the reasons that we love being here in Fayetteville, and they plugged into fellowship as y'all started following Jesus and you guys have done a fantastic job of loving the international community here in Fayetteville. And so we're excited to partner with you in that. They have decided to pursue a path of becoming a global worker to the unreached. And so they're going to spend the next year in a training school in Tijuana, Mexico. And we're excited to partner with you guys and launch you and ask God's wisdom and provision for you. And so um, I have fond memories of our time. You know, Scott worked with us for a year, and uh, it was a huge benefit to our staff team. And uh, I still remember working through the Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman's discipleship book. And I would make you uh, go with me to take my kids to school and driving around Fayetteville. And so we learned how to do some discipleship together. It was really fun. And so, hey, I want to uh, pray for you guys. And uh, if you could, if you're comfortable with this, go ahead and just put your right hand out. And we're going to pray over them in ascending fashion and ask God to be with them over the next year. Father, in the name of Jesus, and because he's the true king, I just want to pray grace into Scott and Audrey's life. God, I pray that you would grant them provision. Um, be with them as they travel over the next few weeks. And God, I pray that their passion for you um, would grow over the next year. God, I pray that you would give them clarity for their future and where you might have them serve on this planet. God, I pray that you would use their life to multiply disciples and that your name would be made famous and that because of their life and their investment, peoples from all over the globe would be around the throne singing that one great song and a praise unto your name. We trust you with the outcomes. We thank you for their faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Man, thankful for you guys. Church, let's continue to worship this morning. Let's stand together. Let's sing songs of praise.
Reminded of the goodness that we see in God through the scriptures and not only through the scriptures, but also in the evidence surrounding us and in our own lives. I would be lying to you if I said I didn't doubt that goodness at times. I didn't doubt his faithfulness at times. And this morning we're going to learn about 
the disciple Thomas, who very much had doubt in his mind um, of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so I wanted to take a second this morning before we dive into the scriptures and just confess some of that doubt that we might have. I think chances are, if I'm feeling that, maybe some of you are feeling that as well. And so I'm going to lead us through a, a spoken word. So if you would um, say this with me, let's be reminded this morning of his faithfulness, of his goodness. So together, let's say, when we forget that you are faithful, remind us that you are a promise keeper. You led your people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire. You shut the mouths of lions to deliver your messengers from certain death. You sent the angel of the Lord to defend your people from surrounding enemies. You will never leave or forsake us. When we forget that you are patient, remind us that you are slow to anger and rich in love. You sent your prophet Jonah to a rebel nation to invite them to repentance so that they may be spared. You delay your return so that more may repent and come to know you. When we forget that you are mighty, remind us that you brought the walls of a city down with the sound of a trumpet. With the word, you spoke the galaxies into being. You give sight to the blind and strength to the weak. Through Christ, you even conquered death itself. When we forget that you are sovereign, remind us that you created all things and are in all things. You hold all space and time in your hands. You feed the birds of the air, not one drops to the ground without your knowing. And you have numbered the hairs on our heads. When we forget that you are just, remind us that you are the great judge, that you alone define justice. You see all things and know all things. You give grace to the humble and oppose the proud. In the final days, you will shield those who are washed by the blood of the lamb and put, all, put to death all evil. When we forget that you are loving, remind us that you left your throne. You put on flesh and endured pain and suffering. You provided a means of salvation when we could not obtain it on our own. You bore our burden weight of our sins, not for a moment, but for eternity, once and for all. So church, as we reflect on these great truths, let us be reminded that we serve a God that is above any other king. Reminded of that through these lyrics that we're about to sing in this new song we wanted to show you guys. The lyrics say this, who else would rocks cry out in worship? whose glory taught the stars to shine, who else would die for our redemption, and whose resurrection means I'll rise. So as we sing these lyrics, remember that we serve a great king, the one true king in Jesus. Who else would rocks cry out to worship? Whose glory taught the stars to shine? Longs to have the words to say, but this joy is mine. 
doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thanks, Ryan, for reading that passage. Oh, Thomas. Stuck with the worst nickname ever. It immediately comes in your mind when you hear the passage. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. That's a terrible nickname. You know he's probably like, I doubted one time. I gotta be known as that forever. And you know those nicknames stick. Like for instance, who's this? Magic. Man, when you see that number 32, you see that smile. That's magic. Nobody in here was like, oh, that's Irvin from East Lansing. No, the nicknames, they stick. How about this guy? Who's this guy? Yeah, I heard it. Eldrick. Isn't that what came in your head when you saw him? Eldrick Woods. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I guarantee you there's some people in here who were like, I thought his given name was Tiger. Tiger Woods. No, it's Eldrick. Sports has given us some great nicknames over the years. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a great nickname go in the Hall of Fame, Big Poppy. Man, what a great nickname that is. Or this guy in the middle, Dale Earnhardt Sr. I know I'm not the only NASCAR fan in the room. The Intimidator. What a great, if you're a race car driver, you don't want your nickname to be The Intimidator. That's awesome. Or this guy, Primetime. Man, what a great nickname for Deion Sanders, Primetime. But nicknames aren't always complimentary. I don't know if Glenn Big Baby Davis would have picked his nickname. And you may not recognize this guy, but if you watch SEC Network football coverage, you're familiar with Booger McFarlane. Probably the less I say about that one, the better. And Thomas. Doubting Thomas. It's been immortalized in paintings and sculpture even in stained glass. He's always depicted as the one who doubts. And so this morning, we're gonna look past the nickname and look a little more closely at the passage and see what's really going on in this story as we continue our series 
on the encounters with Christ in the book of John. So go ahead and turn there with me if you would. We're in John chapter 20. If you've got your paper Bible, maybe you've got a digital device, maybe you brought your John study guide, open that up to the passage, John chapter 20. My name's Michael, and I serve on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And believe it or not, this is the second to last week in our whole John study. Man, when we started this study 20 weeks ago, I thought, man, this is going to be a long study, and now here we are. It's almost over. It's flown by. And so over these last 20 weeks, here's what we've seen. We started with seven I am statements from Jesus in the book of John, and these were strong claims to deity, because every time Jesus said, I am, he was pointing back, back to the Old Testament, back to the great I am, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And Jesus was making himself equivalent to, equal to that Old Testament God. And then we saw seven weeks of miracles. John calls them signs. These were strong demonstrations of Jesus' power. In fact, these miracles vindicate the I am statements. Because Jesus has power over disease, he has power over natural elements, he even has power over death, it supports his claim to deity. Jesus is not just saying things only God can say, he's doing things only God can do. And now we're in the sixth of our seven encounters with Jesus and what we've seen in this section of our study is that this great creator God, this covenant-keeping God who has this power over everything, natural elements, disease, even death itself, he became a man, flesh and blood, and he has these very personal, intimate encounters with a wide variety of people. And so if you were with us last week, you heard Andy Petrie, the team leader for our Celebrate Recovery team here at Fellowship Fayetteville, Teach us about Jesus' encounter with Pilate, the Roman governor. If you missed that, you're out of town, or for some reason you didn't get to hear that, I want to encourage you, listen to that podcast. Andy did a great job walking us through that passage. And I want to remind you where he left us. At the end of Jesus' encounter with Pilate, we see the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history as Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. And so that's where we are. In the story of the life of Jesus, as told in the book of John, Jesus has completed his earthly ministry. He's gone to the cross. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that as the starting place for today's study. Because this was the reason that God the Father sent Jesus into the world. This has been his mission from the beginning Throughout John, Jesus has talked about his hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour is coming. At this moment, when he's handed over to be crucified, his hour had come. Jesus, the innocent one, was going to die. So the guilty ones could live. When he shed his blood on that cross, it was so that you and I, those of us guilty of sin, would have the opportunity to have eternal life with God the Father. And John tells us that when Jesus finished the end of his mission, he made the statement, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. 
Jesus had given his life for you and for me. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Because we turn the page to John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, we find a group of women who are going to the tomb where Jesus has been buried for three days. And they're going there, bringing spices to anoint the body as was their tradition. But what they find is a tomb that's empty. And so one of those women, Mary Magdalene, she goes and tells Peter and John the tomb is empty and they run to the tomb. And what they find when they get there are the linen cloths, the burial cloths that had been wrapped around Jesus are lying there. And then John, in his modest ways, referring to himself, he says the other disciple who reached the tomb first went in and what did he do? He saw and he believed. It's the dominant theme of the whole book. We've talked about it every week. The book of John over and over says, believe, believe. He even says this book was written so that you would believe. And John says, in that moment, I believed. Well, what did he believe? Had he believed in Jesus before? Of course he had. But now that he saw those burial strips laying in that empty tomb, he believed that Jesus wasn't just the crucified Messiah. He was the risen king. He believed that the man he had watched die with his own eyes was now resurrected to eternal glory. And so before we lean into today's text, I want us to take just a moment and think about where this left those earliest disciples. Their master, the man they had spent the better part of three years following and learning from, the man they were convinced was Israel's long-awaited Messiah has been dead for three days. The Jewish and Roman leaders who put him to death, they may well be looking for these disciples for all they know. And now these reports are coming in. Mary Magdalene says she talked to him in the garden. Some other women say they saw him as well. Another follower of Jesus tells the disciples that he walked with him all the way to the town of Emmaus. And just when he realized who Jesus was, he vanished from his sights. So now here are the disciples. Look at John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... I want to stop right there. It's the evening of the first Easter. The disciples had heard all these stories, but as far as we know, none of them had yet seen Jesus. And now here they are, hiding behind a locked door. Why? John tells us in the passage, they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid the same men who had been bent on killing Jesus might be looking for them as well. And I love John's masterful use of understatement. When you read through this gospel, there's so many times that John uses this technique of understatement. He simply calls it the first day of the week. But it's the most significant day ever. It's the day that would divide all of human history. This is the day that would change everything, not just for them, but for all of us. This was the day that God was gonna reveal himself in the most powerful way ever. Because of what happens next, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Suddenly, Jesus was in their midst. Imagine it. 
I'm sure they had to be talking about everything that had happened. I'm sure they were saying to each other, can this be true? Is this real? And then suddenly, there's Jesus. And the first word, the resurrected king says to his disciples, is peace. Where Jesus is, there's peace. And where the risen Jesus is, there's also rejoicing. Look with me at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This is the same Jesus. His hands and his side, they bear the marks of the crucified one. And yet, here he is, standing among them, flesh and blood, alive and well. And the passage says they're glad in the Greek. It has this idea of an overflowing joy. Sometimes it's translated rejoicing. And in the middle of that joyful reunion, he repeats his greeting, peace be with you. Hopefully their mind went back to Thursday night, the night right before he was arrested. When they were together in the garden, it's in John chapter 14, and he said, my peace I give to you. Now he's returned, just like he said he would, and he says, peace be with you. And then we have what many Bible scholars call John's Great Commission. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. This is the culmination of the whole book. John opens with God sending the incarnate word. The word was with God and the word was God. And he took on flesh and dwelled among us. So God the Father sent Jesus, and now Jesus says, I'm sending you. I'm sending you, disciples, and by extension, all of us, to continue this mission. Because the mission of the church grows out of the mission of Christ. It's a continuation of God's plan to redeem for himself a people. And it's a plan only made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now the church continues this mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at the very next verse. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now these verses have baffled a lot of people over the years. And if you want to hear an extended treatment of these, I want to point you to Sermon Notes, our podcast we do every week. Clark and I talked about these verses for a while, and so you can find that wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Sermon Notes. But for this morning, let's take a look at them together. When Jesus breathed on them, and by the way, on them is added by our English translators for clarity. It's not there in the Greek. The Greek simply says, when Jesus breathed, I think it's meant to evoke The Old Testament idea of the breath of God. All the way back in Genesis 2, in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was widely used by the time of Jesus, it's the same Greek word, God breathed. The same word that Jesus breathed in John 20. It's the breath of life. We see the same idea and the same word in another familiar place 
It's over in Ezekiel chapter 37. Many of you will remember Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. God gives the prophet a vision of these dried bones that God brings back together and puts flesh on. But they're still not animated. They're still not alive because they have no breath. And so God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. In that Greek translation, it's the same word. Again, it's the breath of God that brings life. And so back over in John 20, I think Jesus is recalling this idea as he breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the breath of God. It's the breath of life. But this time, it's eternal life. When we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, we're guaranteed eternal life through Christ. Now, I think in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, that's a different event. But I think here in John 20, it's a preview. It's what in Bible study we might call a foretaste of what's to come as Jesus breathes the breath of life and says, now you have eternal life because of his death and resurrection. And then verse 23 is, I believe, simply about carrying the good news, the gospel message of Christ. I think Jesus is saying, make this message so clear and compelling that people will know exactly where they stand. They will know that forgiveness from sins is available only in Christ. And if they resist that message, if they choose not to believe, they will remain outside of that forgiveness and stand condemned. I don't think Jesus is talking about the disciples or any other person giving or withholding forgiveness. I think it's about giving or withholding the message of forgiveness, that we should make it so clear that everyone knows where they stand, because what we're talking about is so serious. Well, what an amazing moment for the disciples. On the day that he's resurrected, they've seen the risen Lord. He's breathed the breath of God on them. He's given them the Holy Spirit that leads to eternal life. Amazing. So how would you like to be the guy that missed it? Man, talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. I don't know where Thomas was. I don't know why he wasn't there, but man, did he miss it. And that sets up his famous statement that's had him forever labeled as a doubter. Look at it in verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, for years, Thomas has been almost vilified, cast as this wavering man who has this weak and feeble faith in Christ. But that depiction doesn't line up with the other places that I see Thomas depicted in the book of John. Back in John chapter 11, Thomas is the only disciple who says, let's go with Jesus back to Judea so that we may die. Does that sound like somebody who's got a weak faith? 
I think we get another little insight into who he is over in John 14, when Jesus is speaking of things to come. And Thomas speaks up and says, could you clarify that? Because that's not making a lot of sense to me. So what I see in Thomas is a no-nonsense pragmatist. I see a realist. I see a guy who just wants to see for himself. And look at the statement itself. Unless I see the wounds, unless I put my finger in there, I will never believe. Man, what a dogmatic ultimatum. Y'all probably know people like that. Y'all know people who make these bold statements and say things they will never do. I I know a guy like that. I see him every morning in my mirror. (laughs) I can admit it. I'm like that. I kind of feel sorry for Lee, my wife. She's sitting right here on the front row. I, I kind of feel sorry for you for how many times you've heard me say, if they don't overturn that call, I am never watching SEC football again. And if it would have helped the Hogs, you think they overturned it? And I keep watching SEC football. I actually had a friend tell me one time, he said, you know, you got a lot of last straws. It's true, I do. I'm always like, well, that's the last straw. It's never the last straw. So Thomas, I get it. You've got questions. And God in his grace is gonna let him wrestle with those questions for a full week. Now think about what that week would have been like. All of his friends are excited because they've seen Jesus. And I can't help but imagine that these women who've seen Jesus, they're probably pleading with Thomas to believe. They've seen Jesus. But Thomas is resolute. He can't believe it's true until exactly one week later. Look at verse 26. It says eight days later, but that's this ancient way of reckoning time where you count the day you're currently in. So it's a week later. And the disciples are once again in the room, and Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Same greeting. Then he says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Again, I want to ask you, try to put yourself in that moment. Imagine you're Thomas, and Jesus looks you right in the eye and says, here I am. You want to put your finger in my wounds? Go for it. Thomas had to be broken in that moment. He had to be crushed. He knew the bold words he had spoken, and he never expected to hear them coming right back to him from the mouth of his risen Lord. So all he can do in that moment is just humbly worship. All he can do is is proclaim Jesus for who he truly is. And Thomas' confession here is the high point of the identifications of Jesus that we've gotten throughout the book of John. Look at it. My Lord and my God. Seven times in this book, Jesus has proclaimed, I am. And now in a moment of worship, Thomas proclaims the central confession, the central message of the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. Now, the early readers of John's gospel, 
the first people who would have received this book, this would have struck two chords. John, as he so often does in his masterful Holy Spirit-inspired writing, he uses one phrase that's gonna hit two different groups differently, the Jews and the Romans or the Gentiles. For the Jew, this confession of Christ as the Lord would have recalled what we call the great Shema. It's a prayer that to this very day, Orthodox Jews pray in the morning and the evening where they say, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh, the creator God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Israel, he's our God. Jewish readers would have surely picked up on the equivalence of this, that Jesus is Yahweh, our Lord, our God. But Roman readers would have detected another idea at work here because around the time we think John's gospel was written, the emperor of Rome was a guy named Domitian. And one of his favorite titles, we have it on here in Latin, which I'm not gonna try to say, but it translates to our Lord and God. And so when Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, he was making the highest claim a Christian can make. Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus is greater than the Roman emperor. Jesus really and truly is Israel's Messiah and the world's true king. And John could have ended his account right there. That could be the last statement of the whole book. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, he includes Jesus' response to this proclamation that he is God and King, Lord and God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Jesus here offers a blessing for every single believer who's come along after the ascension. Everyone who's believed in Jesus after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, everyone who's not seen him in the flesh, but has believed based on the message of those who did, they're blessed. In other words, it's a blessing for us. If you're here this morning or you're watching online or you're listening to this later and you're a believer in Jesus, this blessing is for you because you've believed in him whom the Father sent, even though you haven't seen him tangibly, you couldn't touch him. And that brings us back to this idea of doubt. See, I feel like in that moment, when Jesus looked Thomas in the eye and he said, you wanted to see, you wanted to touch, here I am. I feel like in that moment, Thomas stood in for all of us because the truth is all of us have doubts. No one goes through life with 100% certainty on every question. And so I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. I think it's the beginning of faith because faith begins with a question. What if this is true? What if the thing I've been believing is wrong and this other thing that's been presented to me is true? If our doubts lead us to investigate 
to seek. That doubt can actually lead us to faith. Or if you're already a believer and you're willing to ask some questions to seek some answers, that doubt can lead to your faith being strengthened. Oh, when I look at the Bible, I see tons of people that God used that were filled with doubt. Abraham and Sarah doubted that God could give them a child. In fact, they laughed at the idea. Job doubted that God was good. Moses doubted that God could use him. Gideon doubted that God was stronger than the enemies of Israel. In fact, the whole nation of Israel seems to be wavering and doubting through the whole story, and yet God continued with all of those. Just as Jesus patiently continued with Thomas. So God isn't afraid of our doubts, and we shouldn't be either. Let's bring our doubts out into the light of day. I hope everyone has a place where they can process these things. We all need people where we can say, man, I'm really struggling with this. And if you don't have those people, I personally would love to help you find them. Because a lot of times what we'll find is that other people are struggling or have struggled with the same question that we have. And I want us to remember, when it comes to doubt, if we let our doubt cause us to take a step away from Jesus, we're taking a step towards something. Peter understood that. That's why in John chapter 6, when many who were following Jesus began to leave because his teachings were just too hard, Jesus said to the 12, to the disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? You can't just leave Jesus and go to nowhere. No, you're going towards something. And y'all, I haven't seen anything that explains the world that I see around me any better than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I haven't been presented with any worldview that makes more sense than the one that's revealed in the Bible. So where would I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. He's my Lord and my God. So having faith doesn't mean living a life free from doubt. It means trusting God even in the presence of doubt. That's why Jesus said, do not disbelieve, but believe. It could be translated, stop not believing and start believing. Because even though we have doubts, we have plenty of good reasons to trust the Bible is true. Plenty of good reasons to believe that Jesus really is the Savior. He really is the Lord. He really does have the words of eternal life. And for those of us who believe, despite not having seen, not having tangible proof, Jesus says there's a blessing, and the blessing is knowing him. The blessing is walking with him, experiencing a relationship with him, and that's what I want to invite every single one of you to today. You might have heard the phrase, doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. There's something to that. Lean into what you know is true. Be in community where you can have honest conversations and put your doubt out on the table. Study your Bible, 
with an open mind and an open notebook. Pray and talk to God and be honest with him and then listen to his reply and watch your doubt shrink as your faith grows. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. All you have to do is say in your heart to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God, because Jesus has already promised if we do that, there's a blessing for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you revealed to us through the Apostle John and his writing. And Lord, I pray that anyone here today that has never said to you, my Lord and my God, Lord, could today be that day? Reveal yourself to them in such a powerful way that their faith will eclipse their doubt and they'll give their life to you. And Lord, for those of us who've been following you, maybe for a long time, give us a renewed sense of who you are. Israel's Messiah, the world's true King, our risen Savior. Lord, help us commit ourselves to you because you're worth it. Savior say thy strength indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray find in me thine all in all Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe and sin left a crimson stain he washed it white as let's stand and let's respond to that gospel message and worship this morning Well, he washed it.
was filled with doubt. A week earlier, Jesus had changed everything, but not for Thomas. It would be a week later before everything changed for him. And since then, everything's been changing, one person at a time. And so if you've never had that encounter, you've never had that experience, and you wanna know more about it, any person on this stage would love to talk to you about Jesus our Lord and our God. There's people at the community booth. Maybe you came here today with someone. They would love to talk with you about it. There's people in our prayer room. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you because our heart is that everyone would be able to say with Thomas, Jesus, our Lord and our God. Fellowship, we love you. We'll see you next week.